uh, I've had a message on my heart. We're not going to start a series tonight or anything. I'm not sure where we'll go uh, after this, but uh, might get started on a series. But I've known for a month, maybe two months even now, uh, that this message was on my heart. And so turn to the book of Esther. My, I can't even remember the last time we that we did that. It's uh, very, very seldom that you ever hear a message from the book of Esther. It's a strange but wonderful book. Um, for those of you that might not know, as strange as it seems, the name of God's not even mentioned in this book of the Bible. But the good news is the hand of God is clearly seen. It's not like God's not here. It's just simply that he is not so named in any of the verses here. If I could sum up this book, I would say it is a picture of providence, a picture of providence. It just serves to remind us of how God is at work in our lives in sometimes ways that we uh, that we don't recognize in ways that we never expected. And whenever we put it all together, we see here that there is a challenge for God's people, and that will become obvious, hopefully, by the time that we get through. There are five main characters in this book. Ahasuerus, the king of Persia. Uh, Vashti, who is the queen and then there are two Jews, Mordecai and his, uh, and his uh, niece, uh, Esther, that are there as captives. They're not there on vacation or anything like that, but they're there as captives. And then there's the villain, Haman, that we'll maybe talk about in just a little while. But uh, the book begins with, uh, with the king having a big feast. And so he's gathered all of the men of the kingdom together and they, uh, it's, you know, bottoms up there drinking themselves blind. And, and uh, while this is going on, the Vashti decided the ladies ought to have a, have a ladies meeting. So they're having a ladies meeting over in the other banquet hall. And uh, whenever things sort of start dying down, I suppose, Razorius decided that he wanted Vashti to come over and parade herself uh, before all of the men. He wanted to show his wonderful queen off and have her to, uh, to do a dance or model or something for them, and she refused. Well, that's uh, not a smart thing to do back in those days, to refuse the king. So she was disposed of, and uh, so now the king needs a new queen, and they have, um, I don't know that they would have called it a beauty contest, but that's kind of what it amounted to. They have a beauty contest, parade all of the women before the king, and he decides upon a girl by the name of Esther. And it so happens she's Jewish, but that makes no difference to him because of the fact that uh, he, wants a, he wants a new queen. And so he takes... Uh, Esther is the new queen, 
And things are going along pretty good, except for the fact that there is a, uh, well, there's a, a debate going on between Haman and Mordecai. Haman has been promoted now, and he is uh, in charge of the army and everyone else and everybody, you know, under the king. And consequently, he expected to be shown reverence just like the king. And so if he was coming down the street, everybody would stop the procession, you know, and they would immediately stop and show their reverence. But Mordecai, being a Jew, refused to do that. Well, that went on for a little while, and and Haman came up with a scheme that he approached the he approached the king and and shared his opinion of the Jewish people and put them in a in a bad light and consequently asked the king for a decree to just exterminate all of the Jews, just get rid of all of them. It's amazing, you know, whenever somebody is filled with such hatred against one man, you know, they don't care if they wipe out an entire village of people or or whatever. And so this is where we're at. We're in chapter number four. I'm just going to read for the time being, I think, one verse because I don't want to I don't want to lose our train of thought here. And uh, the decree is signed by the king. It's irreversible. Not anything, you know, that they can do to stop it now. It doesn't seem like anyway. But word comes to Mordecai of what is going on. Mordecai can't approach the king. Uh, he would be executed for doing that. And by the way, whenever he learns of this, he's in sackcloth and ashes and mourning and you couldn't appear before the king in sackcloth. There couldn't be any sorrow demonstrated before the king. And so he comes up with the idea that maybe since my niece Esther is the queen, maybe she can reason with the king and stop this slaughter of the Jewish people. So in verse 14 he says to Esther, For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place, but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In this in this brief story, there are several lessons, and I want us to just focus on this one verse, but I want us to think about three things in connection with what's going on here. And the first thing that ought to be the most obvious has to do with the needs of the people. These Jews that are referred to are those that had not returned after the Babylonian captivity. So they're still captive in the area that, that is that is called Persia. But worse than that, this decree has been issued to kill all of them. You know, it's one thing to live there in captivity. It's another thing to have a death decree against you. And that's what's going on. These people are in grave danger. And of course, that's not unusual for God's people. It never has been. The Jews have been hated down through the centuries, unlike any other nation. And... Um, 
And here they're threatened by an evil man that's determined to kill them. And uh, had it not been for God's intervention, no doubt that would have happened. Well, you know, that reminds me that we live in a world of needy people. And none of us have to look very far to find someone in need. Now, their situation, you know, is much different than what we see here. But still, there are people that have great needs. It, you know, it might be physical in nature or spiritual in nature or whatever it is. It might be that it's a relative, someone that you've known all of your life, someone you love dearly. It might be a friend. It might be a neighbor. It might be a co-worker, a classmate, or it might be a stranger, someone that you've just recently met, but they are in dire need, and their need can take many different forms. Um, the most important, of course, is their spiritual need. I think every person here would respond to the needs of a person if while we were leaving we saw someone struck by a car and they're laying over there in the ditch and bleeding profusely, and I think every one of us would stop and administer aid the best that we could. We'd call an ambulance. We'd do what we could to save that person's life. And, uh, and well, we should. Uh, but so many times there are people with spiritual needs that are in a lot worse condition maybe than that person. And uh, so many times we fail to respond to their needs. Let me assure you, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, that's the desire of God's heart. So we see that we live in a world full of needy people. But then we see that in this story the nature of God's work. And there are three or four things that jump out at me anyway. Number one, God uses people. You know, and we see it throughout the Bible, but we see it, you know, especially when it comes to uh, to winning people to Christ. I've often said, you know, if God wanted to, he could he could write the the message of the gospel in the sky. He could so arrange the clouds that there it is perfectly clear for everybody to see. Uh, he could send the angels and they could all in one accord all declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. He could even in, enable the woodpeckers to type it out in Morse code from the, from the telephone pose. Uh, he could do any of that stuff, but yet God decided that he was going to use people. And this book is all about the importance of God-given opportunities. God uses people. God gives us opportunities. Secondly, God wants to use you. A lot of times, you know, we are very well aware of the fact that God uses people. We look back, you know, through the Bible and we see how that God used Noah and God used Moses and right on down through the Bible, how God used men, how God used women. We read in the history books how God used people all down through the ages. But sometimes we forget that God wants to use us. And even though our situation is different, God has a plan for each and every one of us, and God has a way of arranging things to put us in a position so as to be used. Keep in mind that this was not something that Esther had decided to do 
maybe a year ahead of time and decided that I'm going to put myself in a position that someday I'll be able to save the lives of all of these Jewish people. She didn't have any idea what was going on. At that point in time, her uncle Mordecai didn't either. So it's not anything they've done, but it's God working behind the scenes. And, and, and so, so it is with us because God will bring us in contact with people that have no concept of God. And so many times, you know, we think, you know, we're exempt from duty. I mean, after all, you know, we haven't been ordained as a, you know, as a preacher or as a deacon and we haven't been assigned to Sunday school class and, you know, we haven't been off to Bible college, and so we, you know, we just kind of leave it up to somebody else to take care of those things. And in reality, God wants to use us. Now, God could use someone else. In fact, Mordecai told Esther, you know, that if you don't take advantage of this opportunity, God's going to raise up somebody else to save the Jews. Now, keep in mind Whenever he speaks about saving the Jews, that does not mean that the immediate needs of the people would be met, but rather that God would use someone else. It doesn't mean that nobody's going to die. In fact, just the opposite is true, because he tells her that if you don't respond to this, among those who are killed are going to be your own family members. They're going to be put to death also. So here we see a picture of the providence of God, how... His unseen hand is in everything. And we ought, to, we ought to consider the fact that whenever we think about being in this world and being here as a, at, at a time such as this, realizing that we live among people with great needs and that God wants to use us and how foolish it would be for us to just say, I refuse. I mean, I wonder what you would think about Esther if she would have said, you know, look, I'm the queen. I live in the palace. I have everything my heart desires. I am in need of nothing. And, you know, I'm sorry that you got yourself in a position that, you know, that all of you are about to be killed, but that's not my problem. Nobody would admire her had she taken that attitude. And it certainly would have been wrong. But so many times that, when you get right down to it, that's kind of the basic attitude that we have. You know, we just going to leave it up to somebody else to get the job done instead of responding to the need. So we see that we live in a needy world and we see the nature of God's work. But the main focal point tonight has to do with the neglect of duty. And number one, neglecting our duty is going to put us in grave danger. Think about this. The safest thing for Esther to do was to make other people safe. All of these other people are depending on her. She could have tried to play it safe. And it might have worked for a while, but eventually it would have caught up with her. So she is in a dangerous and a difficult position. And, uh, and sometimes whenever we think about doing the work of the Lord and we think about the difficulties that we encounter, you know, there are people that they, 
have the idea that if they're not an extrovert, for example, that some way they're exempted from witnessing to other people. Uh, and sometimes, you know, especially in the day that we live in, uh, we think, you know, times have changed. I, I can remember many years ago, back in the Ozarks, going visitation door to door. And, you know, even if someone was of whatever denomination or didn't go to church at all, for the most part, people were friendly. You know, they would invite you in. Now, there have been a few exceptions. I've opened the door and had a gun stuck in my face and some things like that. But that's the exception. As a general rule, you know, people were easy to deal with. Sometimes they would in, in, invite you in for coffee and uh, a piece of cake or whatever it is. And uh, But times have changed. And, and all of us would agree that it's much more dangerous today to get out here and go from door to door. And, you know, we reason with ourselves that it's not only dangerous, it's just totally ineffective because most people feel like we do. We, you know, we don't want someone knocking at our door. I, just today, I, some Jehovah Witnesses came to our house and uh, opened the door. They introduced themselves and I said, I'm not interested and please don't come back and shut the door. And, uh, you know, I, I, there, there was a time when I tried to take a different approach and, uh, you know, that really doesn't work either. And, uh, but, but, but the point is people just don't want you coming to their house. It's dangerous, uh, and so forth. Does that exempt us from our duties, our responsibilities? Think about it a little while. You know, we, uh, we support missionaries that that have gone to foreign countries and subjected themselves to horrible hardships. Uh, I think about Dennis Thomas and Jolene, his, his wife, for example, and the things that happened to her years ago after arriving on the mission field. It would have been enough to make most missionaries say, I'm getting out of here. I value my wife too much to subject her to danger like this. And those two have stuck it out through the years and uh, just recently, by the way, have been forced to flee from the country uh, momentarily uh, because of safety reasons. But what we seem to forget is the fact that the safest place on this earth is in the center of God's will doing, you know, doing what we ought to be doing. And sometimes we expect the missionary to go do something that, you know, that we're not willing to do ourselves. Uh, the most dangerous place, you know, is being one inch outside the will of God, and the safest place is being in the will of God. Someone, uh, some, and I, and I don't know whether it was Spurgeon or whoever it was, but someone wrote these words, and I jotted it down, said, it is always... In the end, easier and infinitely safer to do our duty, whatever it may involve of cost or peril, than not to do it. To drop out of the ranks in life's crowded pathway is to lose all. To neglect opportunities is to throw away honors and crown. Now, if anyone, to my way of thinking, if anyone was ever justified in ignoring their duty, you know, it might seem to be Esther. 
she could have she could have said to Mordecai, "Look, you got us in this trouble. You get us out." She could have said, "Look, all you had to do was to bow down when Haman came down the street. Would that have hurt you?" I mean, just to bow down, just to show him some reverence for the position that he is in, would would that have hurt you? Now, you've made this big mess, and you expect me to get out of it. And by the way, she's laying her life on the line. I mean, the queen or nobody could just barge into the king's presence without an invitation. So she is putting herself in great danger. So... Neglected duty puts us in danger. But it notice he says, Thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. That is, if you neglect this opportunity, if you ignore your responsibility, not only are you going to die, but notice thy father's house shall be destroyed. Boy, that, that ought to get our attention. That if we neglect our responsibility... If we ignore our opportunities, we put ourselves in danger and we put our loved ones in danger. I, you know, I realize most people don't even take that into consideration. They, you know, let themselves get out of the will of God. They're living in rebellion against God. They don't think about what might happen to their spouses, their children, their grandchildren, and and their loved ones. Look, God doesn't make any idle threats. Whenever God says, you know, that this is this is what could happen or this is what will happen, uh, that puts us in jeopardy. And 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 our natural mind says, yeah, but that just seems so unreasonable. Do, do you really think that God would, you know, take one of my children because of the fact that that I refuse to do what He wants me to do? I absolutely believe that. David's child died because of, of his sin. And the whole thing is, is that however severe the judgment is, it's never unjust. A lot of people think about it. Well, it's so unfair of God to take the life of a little baby. Let me tell you, that little baby's a whole lot better off being taken out of this world and into the presence of God than left here and raised under the influence of someone that doesn't care about God. It's an act of mercy on God's part for that to happen. So God's concern for people uh, and those that share that that concern uh, has to do with meeting the needs of those people. And if we're not, th- think about this, if we're not concerned about the needs of others, then we're not needed. We're not needed. That's a sobering thought, really, isn't it? If we're not concerned about the needs of anybody but ourselves, we're, we're not we're not needed. I think every person here, let me look around, there might be uh, <laughs> might be some heathen here. I, every person here would, would love to see the church grow, numerically I'm talking about now. We, we'd, uh, 
Brother Richard and I was talking today about the number of, of seats out that will be out for uh, the Easter service on Sunday. And, uh, and, and hopefully they'll all be filled and overflowing. You know, that'd be wonderful. And, and there's not anything wrong with having a desire for church growth. But I tell you, doing the Lord's work is about a whole lot more than just growing numerically. There are more important things than that. And as strange as it might seem to some people, I'm not the least bit concerned about people joining the church if they don't intend to really be a part of the church and serve the Lord and do what He wants them to do. Because I've discovered over the years that those kind of people usually end up being troublemakers. If they're not a troublemaker, they become just a weight to the church. They're no help to the church. And I realize, don't misunderstand, I realize that there are those that are new Christians, that are immature Christians, and it's our job as a church to do what we can to help them grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I understand that. But I'm talking about those people that join the church just because they kind of, you know, that's a thing to do. Everybody, you know, goes to church and so they decide they will. Like the family that years ago that back when I was in Missouri and they came and joined that morning. I've told this story, no telling how many times. And they stood there before the congregation and the fellow turned to me and uh, just, you know, as we acted upon their request to receive them by letter, and he turned to me and he said, Pastor, he said, I just want you to know that we'll be here just as long, you know, as there's no trouble in the church, the first sign of trouble, and we're gone. And I really felt like saying, buddy, you might as well leave now. You might as well pack your bags and keep going we don't need members that have no concern about the needs of people because that's where the heart of God is. And uh, so let me kind of wrap, wrap up my thoughts tonight. I, I wrote an article in Morning Man. Um, it's been about two years ago, I think. And, and I made a statement. I just said, uh, sometimes I feel like I'm living in the wrong generation Things have changed so much since I started preaching over 50 years ago that I feel out of place. Now, I probably made that statement more than once, but I remembered and that I had written it down in an article, and so I went back and I looked it up to get the quote correct. Uh, but I don't know about you, but when we think about the world that we live in, Sometimes we Christians feel out of place, don't we? And sometimes we wonder, what in the world am I doing in the world? You know, even with all of the effort that's put forth by preachers and by churches, and not only now, but go back through the centuries, for example, and you think about all of the effort that's been made there. There are those that are uh, post-millennialists. There are those uh, that that believed this was before World War I, World War II, and most, uh, a good number of the Southern Baptists uh, believed that they were going to usher in the kingdom of God, that we were going to preach the gospel and so saturate the nations with the truth that eventually we would bring in the kingdom of God. Well, 
That didn't work, did it? In the first, in the first place, the doctrine is unscriptural. It's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, but but things haven't got any better. In fact, as we know, the Bible says, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. So, uh, so it's getting worse instead of better. And if we're not careful, we might not say it, but we begin to think, what's the use? Why, what's the use? Why even try? When I was pastoring in Cincinnati, I can remember visiting as many as a hundred homes without so much as getting inside the door. Now that was about 33 years ago. But I mean, to go out there and walk up and down the streets and knock on the doors, and uh, especially the area that, w- that, that we were in was uh, uh, mostly Catholics there. And we finally discovered one day, and somebody even told us what they do is whenever you visit the house, they'll call their neighbor, tell the neighbor there's a bunch of those Baptists back out here, you know, and uh, so they were spreading the word. And, and I'm, I'm telling you, as hard as you might try, after a while, that just kind of wears on you. You have no idea how many pastors resign every year because they just grow weary in the work and they get the feeling, what is the use? You know, and uh, I understand how they feel, but it doesn't make it right. It's wrong. But I'm telling you, we as Christians can get, you, you, you know, that way. So here we are in an ever-changing world with a never-changing message that refuses to change for the better. And, and it's that thought that more than anything else made me want to, to speak about this subject tonight. We're in an ever-changing world. And a lot of those that are my age, we, if you feel exactly like I do, we're kind of in a state of shock, aren't we? Words that at one time you wouldn't even think about using in polite company now you hear every day and 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 it is even promoted i can remember for example in regards to like homosexuality and what have you preachers would not even address that subject from the pulpit i mean it it was taboo it was something even though you know everybody was against it basically but you you just you just didn't want to get off on some something you know that that course that crude that sinful it's better to not even mention that and and now we live in a world where and we look at america and think what in the world has gone wrong and it's so tempting for me to just sit here and and i I don't need to make a list you know what i'm talking about people they don't even know what sex they are they don't know what bathroom to go to they uh, there's never been such a confused bunch of people on earth and we look at what's going on in the political landscape, for example, and you, and you have to wonder, what are we doing to ourselves? I mean, the Constitution no longer means anything to a good number of our people today. And um, so sometimes we just get 
overwhelmed with this idea that we're just spinning our wheels not getting anywhere. I love what Paul said when he said to depart and be with Christ, he said, is far better. Is there anybody that would argue that? I, I, I can remember some time ago I wrote an article about that and and some people didn't know really how to take it. They got the idea that I was wanting to die or something. You know, well, I'm not afraid of death, but I'm not in any hurry to die. I want to be here as long as God wants me to be here. You know, I'm not saying we all go around with the attitude, well, I wish I was dead. That's not what I'm saying. But to depart and to be with Christ is far better. We we generally don't think of it like that, do we? We think it's something that's really morbid, something awful, something that we hope never comes, but it's far better. But Paul quickly added these words that gets to the heart of what we're talking about. He said, nevertheless, nevertheless, far better to depart and be with Christ. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is what? More needful. More needful. I said a while ago, sometimes I feel like I'm living in the wrong generation. You know, I'm not. If I was, you know, if this was the wrong generation, I wouldn't be living. In spite of the fact that I, you know, that I feel out of place, I'm labeled, you know, too old-fashioned. I've got family members that think, you know, I'm too, too old-fashioned. You know, and uh, if that was the case, I wouldn't be living. You know, they tell us, well, you're just out of touch with the times. Times have changed. Yeah, the times have changed, but the Word of God hasn't changed one little bit. And I'm saying all that to say this, that God has a reason for me to be here or I wouldn't be here. I try to avoid talking about, uh, I know I don't always succeed, I try to avoid talking about the struggle it is for me. Uh, not growing old, That's that. I, I, I don't mind that at all. That doesn't bother me a bit. But the struggle it is to know that, uh, that I've got to sit down and to bring this message or that standing up there behind the pulpit that I cannot keep my head up straight and and I know this church is the most loving, wonderful bunch of people that I that I've ever ever met. And I know everybody, you know, says, "Well, that's that that's okay, you know, just you know, do the best you can. That's all right." But it bothers me. That's what I'm trying to say. And it, it some sometimes it just eats me up because you know I want to be at my very best for you know for the Lord's sake. I, I want to. You know, and and sometimes you know the you get to thinking, well, maybe it's time for me to step aside and just get out of the way. And I have to remind myself, if God wanted me out of the way, He'd take me out of the way. Because if if He didn't want me to be here, I, I wouldn't be here. And, and I'm convinced I'm exactly where I need to be, right here in humble Texas. I, uh, 
I never dreamed I was going to end up here. Uh, I'm a Norman Rockwell kind of guy. Boy, give me a little town with one stoplight, and everybody knows everybody, and a coonhound laying out on the back porch, and you know that, that's the kind of guy I am at heart. I love that, but I love being here. With all of the traffic and the noise and the jet airplanes going overhead. I love being here for one reason. Because I know this is the place that God wants me to be. I know I'm where God wants me to be. And, and that I'm here on purpose. And, and I, I just want to some way get it in your heart tonight. And maybe you don't have a problem with this. Maybe I'm just really off base. Um, but we're a part of this generation for a purpose. Notice he said, for such a time as this. E- Esther, you don't know. It's may- maybe it was meant to be that God put you where you are for such a time as this. And that's, that's the way we need to think about our situation in life. Because we can all think about oh, how it used to be the good old days. Well, we look back there to the good old days, and of course, you know, we know deep down that the good old days were not always so good. They had, you know, polio and a lot of different problems, the Great Depression, and a lot of a lot of things went on back there. Hard work and stuff, and no technology like we have today, and it wasn't always so good. But we look back on that, and we think, boy, that would be the ideal life. No, no, it really wouldn't at least not for you not for me we're here for such a time as this whatever the time is whatever's going on however bad it is somebody says well the economy is just so horrible i'm going to have i think i'm just going to pack my bags and leave houston and go somewhere where i can make a living you 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 mean you don't believe god will take care of you if you stay here where you know he led you it's time we stop running just because of, you know, whether it's finances or whatever it is, stop running from the problem and realize that in God's providence, He puts us where He wants us to be. It's for such a time as this. We ought to count that as a privilege, as an honor, to think about God placing us in this situation and every day of our life, we ought to be mission-minded. And by mission-minded, I'm not talking about just what we do out over there on foreign soil somewhere and those that speak different languages. Yeah, that's a part of mission. But by mission-minded, I'm talking about the fact that we live every day understanding that, that our time on this earth is to be spent on a mission. We are on a mission. We're not here to entertain ourselves. We're here on a mission. And in a sense, it could be said that we owe our very lives to the fact that somebody needs us. Let that sink in. You owe your life. Because as I said earlier, if I said earlier, you know, if, if nobody needs us, then we're not needed. No need for us to be here if nobody, if, you know, if we're not meeting anyone's needs. 
and so we owe our existence to the fact that somebody needs us, and so many times we we overlook that, and and you know that's why that's why people get bored with life. They get they get bitter about life and what have you. They just feel like well, there's nothing to live for. Well, it's because you've turned your focus inward, and we need to understand that somebody needs us. Uh, Right here, and every single time we meet together, there's somebody that needs you. It might be a guest. It might be that their first time here, they're a guest. They need you. They won't come out and say, you know, hey, I need somebody to show me a lot of attention. I need someone, you know, to give me a hug. I need someone to, you know, to help me out. They might not say it, but that's what they feel in their heart. They have a need. It might be somebody that's a new member. And I've often said, you know, if people don't connect, eventually we're going to lose them. I mean, for them to just come in and join the church and sit uh, sit in a seat, I started to say a pew. I can't say that anymore. But, you know, just take take a seat and attend the services. Uh, and as I've often said, people are not looking for a friendly church. They're looking for friends. They're looking for friends. They're looking for a connection. Why? Because that meets needs in our life. Having friends meets needs in various ways. So we don't exist for the sake of gratifying ourselves. Think about all the stuff Esther could have done. I mean, she's the queen. I mean, it could have been a party every night. She could have purchased anything she wanted, had it shipped in from any part of the world. It's just all there. She's living in the lap of luxury. And she could have made life all about just gratifying herself. And that is exactly what a multitude of people have done. They've made life all about gratifying themselves and have forgotten that our number one top priority, main purpose for being here on this earth is to glorify God above everything else. That's our main responsibility. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 talks about that. Whatsoever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you know, you do it all to the glory of God. So many people, you don't know, want to know, well, it'd be okay if I do this or be okay if I do that, you know, and we, you know, all of these gray areas about what's right and what's wrong. Well, you just need to answer one question, really, and that's this. Will it glorify God? If it'll glorify God, you're good to go. Because in order to glorify God, it simply means that we are obedient to do His will with the right attitude. That's what brings glory to God. So, here we are in a needy world that's always changing with a message that never changes, ministering to people that don't really want to hear what we've got to say. In some way or another, we've got to keep ourselves going. And we do that by realizing that we're here on a mission. Win, lose, or draw, we're here on a mission, and we never have the right to quit, never have the right to give up. Turn over one more verse, and I'm through. Acts chapter 13. 
I want you to I want you to think about the example of David. Some of you already know what this verse is. Acts chapter number 13, verse 36. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. Notice that phrase, served his own generation. You know, that's basically all any of us can do. I can't go back through the years and do anything that's going to change what has already happened. And I can't, I can't effect any change in people's lives ten years down the road. I, I, I can't minister to those people. I can't do anything to help those people. We're here on a mission, and the only people that we've got to minister to are those in this generation. This, this is our generation. Now, whether you look at this, for example, from the political standpoint, and we think about what's going on today, and I, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of scary whenever you begin to realize, I mean, these politicians are smart. They may be idiots, but they're smart. In other words, they know where the votes come from, and you better believe that some of them are working diligently trying to reach this next generation with their ideology. I, I've never heard so many young people talking about the glories of socialism is what I'm hearing nowadays. Oh, really? Are you kidding me? I mean, half of those kids can't even define what socialism is. They don't know what it is. But boy, that's what we need. That's what they think. Somebody's putting that in their mind. Now, I'm getting into the political issue just for the sake of an illustration because more important than that is the spiritual needs of this generation. And if we, listen, if we don't reach these young people, let me tell you, nobody is. If we Christians don't meet their needs, nobody else is going to. They're not going to get it when they go off to college or off to the university. They're not going to get it when they go. You know, there was a time some years ago, not that long ago, and I thought, you know, the way to help a boy become a man is put him in the Army or the Marines or something and and boy, when Jason, uh, whenever he en enlisted, I, I, I was I, I was all for it, all right behind him. And well, I'm telling you what things have changed so drastically. And don't please don't misunderstand what I'm saying, because thank God for those that do enlist and go and are willing to fight for our country. Thank God for them. But it's almost a scary thing for me as an older person whether it's as a grandpa or a pastor or whatever, for me to try to encourage some young man to go into the armed forces. Because more than ever, they come out different than when they went in. And by different, I'm talking about, I'm talking not the size of their biceps, I'm talking about their, their worldview. It changes the way they think. And our kids are up against it, folks. Whether it's in the public schools, they, they start getting, you know, 
evolution crammed down their throat from the time they're little kids, and not just evolution, but a whole lot of other stuff I won't go into. And, uh, and we live in a day where a kid can't even wear a shirt or a cap to school that says, Make America Great Again. Can't even carry his Bible into the classroom and put it on his desk. If he bows his head in the cafeteria to thank God for the food, he's going to be ridiculed. Our generation is up against it, and the only people, the only people that can be of help is this generation, you and I. We've got our work cut out for us. Thank God for Awana. Thank God for Sunday school. Thank God for those that show an interest in these, in these children because they need it now more than ever. Don't, don't let, you know, somebody says, you know, the signs of the times, you know, is everywhere and things are getting so bad. Don't let that, don't let that eat away at you until you get discouraged. You know, it's one thing to say, well, preacher, I, I, you know, I would never drop out of church. And I know you, you love the Lord and you love the church. But it's one thing, you know, to not drop out of church. It's another thing to stay in church and drop out of ministry. To stay in church, but you're just in church, you know, and not really meeting any needs. And I'll end where I started. If we're not meeting any needs, then we're not needed. We're not needed. God help us to live every day realizing we are on a mission and that mission is to meet the needs of others. All right, let's stand together.